Chapter forty two of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume two by Moncure Conway. Chapter forty two. In the year of my arrival in London, eighteen sixty three, I met an American banker, George Peabody, a simple, strong-browed old gentleman whose large and wise benefactions won him the gratitude of the poor. He seemed to have been less bothered by application for money from America than by the deluded families who fancied there were accumulated fortunes, e.g. Jenkins, awaiting the discovery of heirs. Professor Marsh of Yale College told me in London that when he called on his uncle Peabody the old gentleman was cordial but when he, Marsh, hinted that he had a request to make, smilingly said, "'For money, I suppose?' "'No,' said Marsh, "'not a penny for myself, but I wish you to endow science at Yale College.' That reached George Peabody's heart, and his purse. The Peabody scheme of homes for the poor was taken up by Sidney Waterlow, afterwards Lord Mayor of London, Knight, Baronet, and Member of Parliament. Sir Sidney, a trustee of South Place Chapel, founded the society in Camden Town, where for many years I gave evening discourses. When he first stood for Parliament, his connection with South Place Chapel came near defeating him, the constituency being in Scotland. Tory journalists came from Scotland on the Sunday before the election to report my sermon, which, however, happened to be without anything that could help them. Sir Sidney's homestead, Fair Seat, was at Highgate on the road associated with Dick Whittington. Whenever I passed the stone marking the traditional spot where Whittington, leaving London in his despair, heard the bow-bells calling him back to be thrice Lord Mayor of London, I recognized in Sir Sidney himself an illustration of the typical London tale. He told me that even when he came of age he was almost without means. On that day he happened to be in Paris with a young friend, his health being drunk with soda-water because wine cost too much. When Emerson was in London, 1872, Sir Sidney requested my intervention to secure a visit from him and his daughter, saying that he ascribed his success in early life mainly to the inspiration of Emerson's essay on self-reliance. I remember a droll circumstance connected with Fairseat. Before the Waterloo's residence there, it was a small frame house occupied by an humble widow, she had for many years reverently preserved a room in which she and her husband passed their evenings, just as it was when he died. The old lady's sentiment about that sacred room was such that no pecuniary inducement could secure the house, until Sir Sidney contracted that, whatever alteration was made, that room should remain intact. He built grand rooms, verandas, conservatories, but at the centre remained that memorial of the widow's love and happy life. Whether since the building came into the hands of the London Corporation, the contract has been fulfilled, I have been afraid to inquire. In this world of disillusion I do not wish to part with even one instance of the power of love to rise above its grave. That widow of Highgate was in her humble way a sister of Mary Magdalene, in whose loving vision, while it was yet dark, Jesus rose again. And for a light so imperishable that even after philosophers have enlarged their temples, deep in their heart remains a room where sentiment cherishes the beloved man. 
Sir Sidney owned also Lauderdale House and Grounds, a historic place adjoining Fairseat. In July 1872 this house was the scene of a function by the Prince and Princess, now King and Queen, which our intimacy with the Waterloos enabled my wife and myself to witness. Sir Sidney gave to St. Bartholomew's Hospital for seven years Lauderdale House, fully furnished as a convalescence home. Nearby, the Whittington Stone reminded me of the half-legendary Lord Mayor, who gave a grand entertainment to the King, who owed him much money spent in his French wars. The Queen, having expressed admiration at the fire of cinnamon wood kindled in her honour, the Lord Mayor made a costlier fire by throwing into it all the certificates of the royal debts. Lauderdale House was the very mansion that Charles II fitted up for Nell Gwynne. In the grounds remained the large marble basin in which the orange girl was said to have disported herself. We saw the traditional window where Nell held out her infant and cried to the king in the garden, "'Unless you do something for him, here he goes!' The king cried, "'Save the Earl of Burford!' The Earl of Burford became the Duke of St. Albans, the fortune of whose house found its way to the benevolent hands of Miss Burdett Coutts, who accompanied the Prince and Princess when Lauderdale House was opened as the convalescent's home. Lady Waterlow told me that she had not ventured to invite the Princess, who, however, wrote her a note saying she would like to attend. At this fete we entered under an archway inscribed, Friend to All Nations, the allusion to the hospital's hospitality to the world being appropriate also to the cosmopolitan prince. In that same month, July 1872, Elizabeth Chase of Rhode Island and Julia Ward Howe, delegates from America to a prison congress in London, summoned a peace congress. It took place in St. George's Hall just after we had been celebrating that Fourth of July which has done so much to consecrate the sword. About three hundred were present, but every one a source of influence. Only ten years before Mrs. Howe had written her hymn, having around Washington City seen a fiery gospel writ in burnished rows of steel. Most people find something divine in a war for their side. But her plea for peace was eloquent. She considered that the old peace society had been shown useless by the Franco-German war, and women must now do something. She had come to England to knock at their door and say, "'Sisters, arise! The bridegroom cometh! Go forth to meet great duty on the way!' Mrs. Howe, who twenty years before had put forth her poetic passion-flowers, showed that the wand in her hand could blossom with passionate love of freedom and justice. While she spoke I cast a glance at my friend Professor Seeley, in whose Ecce Homo men of differing creeds found a common watchword, the enthusiasm of humanity with a feeling of joy in his being there to witness this manifestation of American moral genius. The almost boyish-looking scholar, smooth-faced, flaxen-haired, was looking on the speaker with an expression of happiness, and very happily he followed her. There were few more charming speakers than this professor, and I think his marriage with one of the accomplished Philot sisters may have assisted in the large view he held with regard to the eternal feminine. He pointed out the many utopias that had been realized, and declared that all ideals had their chances. He welcomed Mrs. Howe's aim as directed to bringing forward women to aid the cause of peace. It was appropriate at a time when women were claiming a larger relation to public affairs. Mrs. Howe on the Sunday following preached eloquently in my chapel to a great audience. Indeed, several American ladies preached for me, among them Mrs. Livermore and Mrs. Stanton. 
Ernestine Rose gave us one Sunday her reminiscences of Robert Owen. These American ladies were more eloquent in the popular sense than the English female orators, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton was not surpassed by any congressman or commoner of her time. But in what is called parliamentary speaking, the English ladies excelled. I do not believe John Bright ever made a finer speech than I heard from his sister, wife of Duncan McLaren, M.P. It was at a woman's suffrage meeting, her husband in the chair, and Mrs. McLaren, without betraying emotion, moved us all by her gentle accents and her thought, for she had no gestures. Alluding to a recent charge that women were not practical enough to vote, she referred to the message Pilate's wife sent him as he sat in judgment. "'Have thou nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him.' For once I felt that I was listening to a lady worthy to be compared for beauty of thought to Lucretia Mott, whom only thirty-seven years before Quaker orthodoxy doomed to sit silent in a gallery at the World's Anti-Slavery Conference in London. William Lloyd Garrison, who was present at this meeting, 1877, had told me he was resolved not to speak, but he was so inspired by speeches of Mrs. McLaren, Lady Talbot, Mrs. Fawcett, and others, and by the revelation of the new age that had arrived in London since Lucretia Mott was forbidden to speak there, that he was presently making a brilliant speech. The gray-haired American went a step beyond all the radicalism of England by proposing that there should be established in London a women's parliament, at whose session every measure of importance brought before the men's parliament should be discussed. This sentiment so delighted the crowd of young ladies present, and their applause was so prolonged, that the venerable member of Parliament who presided was constrained to remark, though he did it smilingly, that a woman's Parliament was not yet included in the programme of their movement. At that time I did not take so much note of Garrison's idea as I did of his felicity in the speech. But in after years I reached the same idea, the women's Parliament, and printed articles about it. Only recently I was reminded by my old notes that the plan had occurred originally to Horace Greeley, and later to Garrison. In each case, probably, as in mine, it was thought out independently. In November 1883, while I was in Australia, Elizabeth Cady Stanton gave a discourse in my chapel on the question, What has Christianity done for woman? It was her first matured declaration of religious independence. She showed by the facts of history, as she says in her autobiography, that no form of religion was woman indebted for one impulse of freedom, as all alike have taught her inferiority and subjection. No lofty virtues can emanate from such a condition. I have had talks with her on the subject, also with the equally free-thinking Susan B. Anthony, and with the eloquent Reverend Anna Shaw, and distressed these suffragists by my belief that the disenfranchisement of their sex had made them individual thinkers and orators. As for suffrage, the masses of men are unfit to vote, and womankind are under coverture of mankind. It is impossible, save in a few cases, to get at the real sentiment and conviction of the woman. Her vote would always be that of her parson, or of some man. Even the most emancipated ladies in London, demanding suffrage, did not dare to utilize for their cause the most eloquent among them, Annie Besant, because, I suspect, of her repudiation of Christianity. In 1873 my wife and I were much interested on hearing that the Reverend Frank Besant, of the English Church, brother of Sir Walter Besant, had separated from his wife on account of her unorthodox opinions. 
In their village, religious scandal had been caused by the abstention of the vicar's wife from the communion. Soon after, a pamphlet by her was printed in the rationalistic series edited by Thomas Scott. Both husband and wife found the situation embarrassing, and peacefully separated, a deed being drawn up assigning their little boy to the father except for one month of each year, when he was to be with his mother, while the little girl was to remain with her mother under the same condition. Mr. Besant had but a small income and could give his wife nothing. My wife at once invited her to come with her child and stay in our house until she could make satisfactory plans. The invitation was accepted. It filled us with astonishment that a young man should be willing to part from this beautiful and accomplished wife for the sake of any creed. She could not be more than about twenty-seven years of age. Her face was beautiful. Its delicate oval contours and feminine sensibility were heightened by the simplicity and sincerity which come of good breeding and culture. Her little girl Mabel was as lovely a child as I ever beheld. Our three children were in utmost delight at having the little companion with the mother. After some weeks Mrs. Besant became troubled about remaining, but I was able to quiet her fears of staying too long by engaging her to do some work for me. Being occupied with my demonology and devil lore, I had a number of German books gathered from obscure places in which there was some mention of local legends. Mrs. Besant knew German also French and Italian, and gladly undertook to sift them. I still have the book in which she translated the desired items. Meanwhile Bradlaugh discovered that Mrs. Besant's opinions were inclining towards secularism, and she was invited to write for the National Reformer. He could not pay her much, but her assistance improved the paper and enlarged its circulation. She wrote under the nom de plume of Ajax. Mrs. Besant gave an excellent discourse at South Place, and it was evident she was entering on an important career. There was even greater charm in her speaking than in her writing. After her first visit Annie Besant was often with us, and the affection expressed in her autobiography for my wife was always returned. In 1877, when Charles Watts was arrested for publishing Fruits of Philosophy, an essay on the population question, by the American Dr. Charles Knowlton, which had been on sale in the Freethought book establishment for forty years, he, Watts, declined to defend the pamphlet, which was charged with indecency. Mr. Bradlaugh regarded it as necessary to defend the honor of the worthy Freethinkers, James Watson and the Holyoaks, who had printed the really medical Malthusian pamphlet, though he admitted that if it had been offered to him as manuscript he would have refused it for the bad taste of a few phrases. Mrs. Besant had become a partner in the Freethought book establishment, but we all hoped she would not associate herself with the case. My wife and I entreated her not to do so, though we regarded the pamphlet as legally defensible, because we foresaw that evil tongues would be busy with her reputation. But she felt it a point of honor to bear her part in the defense. She largely prepared the case. She went through many standard medical works, comparing them with the Knowlton pamphlet, and during the trial acted as a solicitor for Bradlaugh, whose conflicts had made him for such issues one of the ablest lawyers in England. Although the first condemnations were quashed by a writ of error, the consequences to Annie Besant could not be escaped. Her husband demanded their daughter on the grounds that the mother was an atheist, that Mabel had no religious teaching, and that her mother was not a proper person to bring up a child because she had published a pamphlet teaching people how to regulate the size of their families, that being an immoral book. 
On Saturday, May 10, 1878, the master of the rolls, Sir George Jessel, devoted four hours of his Jewish Sabbath to this case between an English clergyman and his wife. Mrs. Conway sat beside Annie Besant in the courtroom, Wentworth Higginson and myself accompanying them. Annie Besant, simply and elegantly dressed, pleaded her own case alone. She spoke with quietness, point and moderation, and with such adherence to the points of law that although the judge had expressed annoyance at her not having counsel, her conduct of her case elicited from him a compliment. She pleaded that so far as her atheism was concerned, the recent public school act allowed parents to withdraw their children from all religious education, that it was unprecedented in any court to deprive a parent of a child because of any speculative opinions. She also argued that as her separation from her husband was on account of her heresy, he had parted with the child knowing that it could not be educated in orthodoxy, and consequently could not come into court on that ground. With regard to the fruits of philosophy, she cited her preface to it, disclaiming agreement with much in the book, which she published to prove the right to discuss the Malthusian question of population. She contended that as the Lord Chief Justice had already decided that the fruits of philosophy was no worse than many other medical works, a physician might on such grounds be deprived of his child because he had published such works. Up to the year 1873 the law did not permit a man to part with the custody of a child by any arrangement such as that made between the Besants. Since then, however, it was left to the discretion of the judge to enforce such agreement or break it, but solely on the ground of what would be for the temporal advantage of the child. Mrs. Besant said she was prepared to give evidence that she was better able than her husband to provide for the physical comfort and the education of her child. But the judge said that Mrs. Besant had acquired such a reputation by her propaganda of sentiments shocking to the community, that he was convinced that the worldly interests of the child would be more secure in the house of an English clergyman. It was not, he said, to be expected that respectable ladies would associate with her. When the judge said these last words, many eyes in the courtroom were turned upon Mrs. Conway, who sat beside Mrs. Besant. Mrs. Besant sat with burning face. When the two ladies came out of court, accompanied by Wentworth Higginson and myself, we passed through a crowd of several hundred who broke into applause. Mrs. Besant had entered the courtroom young and beautiful. She came out old and hard. She said to me as she moved out of the courtyard, it is a pity there isn't a God. It would do one so much good to hate Him. Here, then, was a Promethea, the beak of Jehovah's vulture in her side. The taking away of the little girl who clung passionately to her mother was intolerable even to many English Christians. A barrister told me that although the decision was within the scope of the law, its principle would compel the eminent Jew who affirmed it to take away, under similar circumstances, the child of a Jew, which in most cases would enjoy more social advantages in a Christian home. Mrs. Besant enjoyed the friendship of a larger circle of ladies in high society than before, but when she applied for admission to a science class open to both sexes in University College London, it was refused. My younger son Dana, with two others in the college, prepared and circulated a student's petition for the admission of Mrs. Besant, and a daughter of Bradlaugh excluded with her but such was the feeling of the majority of the boys, that while my son was going about with the petition, he was attacked by a larger fellow who, after a severe fight, 
managed to tear the petition to pieces. It being Passion Week when the trial was under discussion, I wrote a note to the Daily News, satirically unctuous, reminding Christians of the ancient Jewish mother whose heart was pierced by the loss of her child, and suggesting that such sacrifices as that exacted from Mrs. Besant were necessary to supply the place of the bullocks and burnt offerings by which souls of pagans used to be saved, infidels being now won to Jesus by the sacrifice of their daughters. To this irony I signed Cha D. Band, assuming everybody would recognize in it Chad Band, the proverbial hypocrite of Dickens. To my surprise, however, the National Reformer extolled the letter of Mr. Band, especially as he had been bold enough to sign his name. At a debate between Mrs. Besant and Rev. Mr. Grant, a polemical clergyman, held in my chapel, I presided. The issue was supernaturalism. In contending against the clergyman's doctrine of successive creations, Mrs. Besant found with Tyndall all life potential in so-called inorganic matter. Despite my general concurrence with her, I thought she pressed too far the scientific imagination in finding in the phenomena of crystallization, and in the vegetal forms of transitional organisms, evidences of continuous evolution. On thinking it over, I reached a conclusion that Mrs. Besant's acute mind, more constructive than skeptical, found definiteness on that point necessary. My own imagination was so strongly attracted by the ideal of unity of nature, that I revised the whole subject with extreme care, reaching the conviction that organic and inorganic are essentially separate and co-eternal. My friend Annie Besant followed, no doubt, what appeared the logic of her monistic conviction into theosophy. This, however, is largely conjectural on my part, and if I have in any way misinterpreted her, she will, I know, feel sure that it is with loyalty to our long friendship. Little Mabel suffered grievously by the separation, and on coming of age at once went to live with her mother, with whom she remained until marriage. Annie Besant never spoke to me with any bitterness concerning her husband. I never met him, but the whole affair remains in my memory as a striking instance of the tyranny on earth of beings that do not exist. If there is anything certain, it is that there is no deity who could desire a young man for his sake to dismiss out of his life a lovely wife and burden his children with lifelong sorrow. Sir Walter Besant, whom I often met, never alluded in my hearing to his brother. In conversing with Frederick Harrison on the subject of woman suffrage, I referred to the hope that Emerson had of the purification of politics by the moral genius of woman. Harrison said that one might see in the political societies then newly formed by ladies of high position what women would do with parliamentary suffrage. The Primrose League, so named after Lord Beaconsfield's favorite flower, and its antagonist Liberal League, Gladstonian, were blindly partisan. They seemed ready to advocate any policy whatever of their respective chieftains, however unjust or warlike. On the other hand, that suffrage agitation did not decline without having caused lasting effects. It called attention to the unjust laws relating to women, and these were repealed. It opened the professions to women, and it built colleges for them at Cambridge and Oxford. Some of us regarded it as a stigma on the sex that these colleges were not in regular relation to the universities, and that women could not have the same degrees as men. But I learned that there is another side to this. 
1876 Mrs. Robert Crawshay, a lady connected with my South Place Society, desired me to go to Oxford with the offer from her of a thousand pounds towards founding there a college for women, which should be regularly incorporated with the university. Professor Max Müller had misgivings about the scheme, but desired me to stay in his house, and invited to dinner those likely to be interested in my mission. Among them Mark Pattison and his wife, Mr. Green, author of the short history of the English people, and Mrs. Green, Miss Arnold, afterwards Mrs. Humphrey Ward, and Rev. Dr. Talbot, master of Kebble College, and his wife. To my surprise the master of Kebble and his wife, intellectual as she was beautiful, took my matter up with enthusiasm, and arranged that a conference should be held in his college. He also invited me to lunch with him just before the conference. Thus the first step towards a college at Oxford for women was made in the house of my heretical self in London, and the second in High Church Kebble College. There was no reporter at the conference. The subject was dealt with freely. There was a universal desire to try at Oxford the experiment already proceeding at Cambridge, England. But the difficulty, evidently, was whether girls should be encouraged to give time and toil to the regular studies of the male students. There were virtual admissions by one or two that for a large proportion of these students the dead languages were nearly useless. That in those, and perhaps other studies needed only by specialists, Young men had various ways of getting through examinations without having mastered them, but that young women might take all courses of study to heart so seriously, and toil so hard as to injure their health, and devote some years of their youth to things that would prove valueless in after-life. The partly optional curriculum has been largely introduced since then, but it became evident to me at the conference, and in private conversations, that ancient Oxford had become an antique and ornamental frame around its contemporary culture. No doubt women were so conscientious that they would be liable to take the frame as seriously as the picture, which would involve in most cases failure to comprehend the picture. The matter was presently settled in the best way. I agreed to try and persuade Mrs. Crawshay to give the money in trust to a good commission with discretion as to conditions, and Oxford now has two admirable colleges for women. The Crawshays resided in Sifartha Castle, Merthyr Tydfil. The late Mr. Robert Crawshay was an able man, but his hearing having been destroyed, I think by some blast in his ironworks, he rarely went away from his immense castle. Mrs. Rose Mary Crawshay, his wife, passed part of the year in London, where her friendships were chiefly among scientific people. We were sometimes guests at the castle. Once, 1872, in company with Emerson and his daughter Ellen. The most notable people of Merthyr Tydville were invited to a grand dinner at the castle, and I remember Emerson's amusement at finding in one wealthy gentleman a relic of Welsh antiquity. The conversation fell on Merlin, the mythical theme of a poem by Emerson, and it appeared that a folk-belief lingered that at a certain place the voice of Merlin could still be occasionally heard from the prison of air in which the spell of Vivian had bound him. But the elderly gentleman who sat beside Emerson confided to him in low tones, "'I have passed that spot at every hour of the night and day, and never heard any voice yet.' I saw a twinkle in Emerson's eye as he replied, "'You must be a bold man.' Some time before, when the woman suffrage question was about to come up in Parliament, being at the castle I was invited to address a society in Merthyr Tidville to promote that measure. Mrs. Crawshay presided, and I remember her youngest son Richard, then perhaps fifteen, 
confiding to me when we returned, "'It is a shame that my mother's men-servants should go off to vote while she cannot.' That bright boy touched the only point in the subject that for me retained interest after the movement was submerged by the flood of democracy. The stigma on woman, however intelligent, in the eyes of her own sons and of her inferiors. However, the vulgarization of the political vote rendered it inevitable that many thoughtful and scrupulous men should retreat from the mob-ridden polls and form with the ladies a non-voting elite. The women for whom suffrage was demanded by Mill, Fawcett, and other leaders in England were not those under coverture either as wives or domestics, but taxpayers, widows and spinsters who would have votes if they were men. But when manhood suffrage arrived in England, practically, the correlative would be womanhood suffrage, the vote of every lady swamped by those of her domestics the English ladies of intelligence and means having under the reformed laws all the liberty they need, and all resources for culture, having been steadily turning their attention to things within their reach. Mrs. Crawshay could not have secured with a hundred votes so much realization of her personal aims as she did in forwarding female culture at Oxford, founding a prize for literary essays, promoting cremation, and surrounding herself in Wales with congenial guests. After her husband's death she resided at Rose Cottage, not very far from Bulge, Wales, where she used to invite her London friends. My wife and I always remembered a particularly happy week there with the Cliffords and Richard Henry Horne. This poet, so dear to the Brownings, was a charming man. Though considerably over seventy, he swam across the large neighboring pond and back before breakfast, however chilly the day, delighted us by his literary reminiscences, and sang us Spanish songs some also of his own, accompanied by his banjo. He was a well-informed freethinker, with racy humor, and it was a rare experience to listen to the wit and wisdom of two men of unique genius, Clifford and Horne. And as Mrs. Clifford was there, too, the charm of our symposia at Rose College may be imagined by those who knew the company. Alas! How few are left! End of chapter 42